For those of you who don't know me, my name's Warren, and this is my second ever preach. If you were here for the first one, there was a, a, quite a dramatic thunderstorm on that <laughs> night, and we were in this venue, and it's got a, a sink roof, and the rain was unbelievably loud. Uh, you couldn't hear me if you were sitting where Arno was sitting, and there was uh, one specific bolt of lightning, and then there was no electricity. <laughs> And I was relying on Jonah to do a nice long worship session so that I could, you know, it could buffer my preach a little bit. But yeah, things worked differently that night. I actually spoke about calming the storm. Um, so, well, tonight's about comebacks. Whatever you ordered for tonight. <laughs> tonight's about comebacks, guys. And I think, yeah, it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite fitting that I'm preaching a preach about comebacks, considering my past and, and the years that I was asleep. And, and didn't have my eyes open to the Lord's glory. I think everybody loves a comeback, whether it be in the context of sport or if you're recovering from an illness or just beating the odds to succeed. I'm a sucker for sports dramas. I love them. And my wife, Megan, will often laugh at me as I sit with a tear in the corner of my eye watching as that underdog team comes back and wins. And actually saying it out loud now is a little bit embarrassing. But I just I think that we love to see somebody overcoming adversity and, and rising above their challenges. If you love a good comeback story, look no further than this book right here. The Bible is filled with amazing comeback stories. A few weeks ago, Arno spoke about unexpected characters that God had chosen to use. But some of the most amazing comeback stories in the Bible actually involve biblical giants. I mean, if we look at Abraham, Abraham was so impatient with God's timeline for his life that he actually got his servant pregnant. But God still blessed him with the promised gift of his son, Isaac, when he and his wife were about 100 years old. And then he went on to become the father of the nation of Israel. Or Moses, Moses who was brought up in the royal household of the Pharaoh in Egypt. But he ended up killing an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave and then fleeing to some tiny village just to escape the death penalty. See, Moses had an obvious anger issue in his life, but he went on to be used greatly by God and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He went from the palace all the way to the edge of nowhere to the edge of the promised land. Or David, who had faithfully served the Lord all of his life from boyhood and became the king of Israel. But he fell victim to his own lust issue. If you remember, he impregnated another man's wife and then effectively had her husband killed on the front line of a battle. But he repented and he continued to serve the Lord faithfully and be used by the Lord for the rest of his life. And he brought us many of the Psalms. Or Elijah, a prophet who had done so many miracles in the Lord's name, who ran away and hid when he was threatened by Jezebel. He actually became so desperate in that time that he wished for death. But the Lord sought him out on a mountain and spoke to him. And through him, Israel turned back to the Lord for that time. Some amazing comebacks that show God's restoration power in people and how he can use them for great things, despite all their mistakes and their sins. But if you really want to understand the amazing personal hope that the resurrection brings to our lives, then we have to look to the New Testament. And the story of Peter's comeback is quite an amazing example. We're going to look at two main texts tonight. Uh, the first one is before the resurrection of Jesus, and the second after the resurrection. And both of them feature interactions between Jesus and Peter with some quite striking differences. Let's turn together to Matthew 26, and we're going to start reading at verse 30. It should be up on the board, yeah. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of the disciples said the same. And I think that most of us know that it happened exactly as Jesus had predicted. Peter did deny Jesus three times before that next morning. And what made Peter's betrayal even more shocking was that he had such a special relationship with Jesus. He wasn't just a casual acquaintance of Jesus or somebody who had just recently started walking with him and following him. Actually, when we read about Jesus interacting with small groups of disciples, Peter is generally there. Peter witnessed Jesus raising the dead girl. He witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. Just a sidebar on that one, Moses and Elijah, two of our Old Testament comeback characters, were also there on that mountain, despite all their failings in life. Peter was even asked to keep watch over Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He seemed to be one of Jesus' most trusted disciples, a part of the inner circle, if you will. He was the rock that Jesus said he would build his church on. We read in Matthew, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Talk about high praise. But this same man betrayed and abandoned Jesus. He publicly denied Jesus three times after his arrest. You may ask, how could this have been possible? How could somebody who was so close to Jesus and who had actually witnessed him performing amazing miracles betray him? How could someone who had said the words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, not long before that, then go on to deny knowing him and being his follower? You might even feel a little bit hopeless at this point. I mean, if somebody like Peter, pastor of Jesus in a circle, the actual rock that the church is built on, could fail so dismally, what chance do we have? What chance do I have? But I want to remind you and encourage you tonight. God chose to use you according to His will, knowing all of your shortcomings. And I don't mean just the shortcomings that your close friends and your family know about. He knows all of your shortcomings. What's happening deep down in your heart? If you're new to the church tonight or just exploring your faith or you're not yet a believer, I've got a big truth to share with you. The church is not made up of perfect people. Far from it. Everyone in this room has a problem or a sin that they're grappling with. We all mess up. But don't feel hopeless. There is hope. And that hope is the hope that Jesus brought for us with his life on the cross. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's get back to looking at Peter. I don't know if you've ever watched a series where the main character or one of the main characters is replaced by a new actor in the season or in between seasons. It's so confusing, it's so disorientating, and sometimes it feels a bit like that with Peter. This is because before he met Jesus, his name was Simon, the brother of Andrew. And then at other times he's referred to as Simon Peter or just Peter and even Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock. 
And to complicate matters further, there was actually another disciple who was named Simon. It gets so confusing. But to properly get a grip on his comeback story, I want us to look at some of the traits that Simon Peter showed before the resurrection, and then we're going to compare them to the traits that Peter showed as he made his comeback. So let's meet Simon Peter. Scripture is actually quite revealing about his character. If you read various scholars' comments about him, you come across words like strong-willed and enthusiastic, which are not necessarily bad things, but also brash, and he's always speaking his mind and acting on impulse. And if we look at our text again, we get the impression that Simon Peter actually thought that he was better than the other disciples, that he was more loyal than the other disciples. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He saw himself as superior. And Arno spoke last week about how when they had heard that Jesus' body was missing from the tomb, Simon, Peter, and John had rushed there. And John had won the race but was hesitant to enter the tomb. But Simon, Peter, rushed right in. He was impulsive and it gives us insight into that. There's an amazing incident in Matthew 14 when Jesus walks on water. And this terrifies the disciples who actually think that he's a ghost. But he reassures them. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Simon Peter's response is quite interesting. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. And Simon Peter actually gets out of the boat and walks on water. But then shortly afterwards, he becomes afraid and starts to sink. Talk about a roller coaster. I mean, he goes from doubting. He says, if it is you, although Jesus had already said, take heart, it is I, to challenging Jesus. He says, command me to come to you. And then he showed great faith by actually getting out of the boat and walking towards Jesus on the water. And then his faith failed him and he started sinking. I wonder how many of us can identify with this story tonight. If we get a word or a prompting or a sign from God, do we question him? Do we doubt if it is truly from him? Do we challenge him? And then if we do finally step out onto the water in faith and face some kind of obstacle in our path, How far out onto the water do we get before we lose our faith and start to sink? When Jesus was arrested that night, Simon Peter drew a sword and struck the high priest's servant. Striking that servant and cutting off his ear was so contrary to what Jesus did in that situation and everything that Jesus had taught. This Jesus peacefully handed himself over to be arrested. He already knew the eventual outcome, but he was completely submissive to the will of his Father God. You see, Simon Peter was suffering from a heart issue. He was suffering from a big identity issue in his life, which might not have been so apparent even to himself. Tim Keller says it like this, Simon Peter's identity was based on the assumption of his superiority to his fellow disciples. He was not basing his identity on Jesus' great love for him, but rather on his great love for Jesus. That's, I'm going to read that one again for us. He was not basing his identity on Jesus' great love for him, but on his great love for Jesus. Jesus was his teacher, but Simon was his own savior. And despite Jesus warning him directly about his coming failure, Simon Peter had absolutely no sense of his danger. Why not? Because if you base your identity and your self-worth on being brave and look into your heart and then see cowardice or failure, you have to screen it out or deny it. Any identity that is not rooted in Jesus' unmerited love for us is fragile 
And that identity, when it's challenged, can break. It can lead to denial. It can lead to hostility, as we saw with Simon Peter, or even a complete breakdown because your foundation is shattered. What do we build our identity on? If I were to ask you tonight to give me five words to describe yourself, what would they be? Traditionally, a person's identity was rooted in family. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a father or a mother. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. And that's, I think, why the genealogies are so prominent in the Bible and why they're so important. Because it was important to know who is this person? Where do they come from? In modern times, though, the roots of our identity has shifted away for many from who you are to what you are. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm an engineer. Or to your personal achievements, whether they be in your career or in your sporting endeavors, in your role in the community, even your social media status, or even your role in the church. I wonder how many of us would include the word servant in our five words to describe us. Or Christ follower. Simon Peter had denied being a Christ follower three times. But let's take a look at Peter after Jesus' resurrection and his comeback. Let's turn together to John 21. We're going to read from verse 15 to 17. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. This Peter that we encounter after Jesus' resurrection is like a new man. He's humble, he's submissive, and God-honoring. During this encounter that we read about, Jesus gives him a chance to make up for those three times that he had denied him just after his arrest. And this interaction may feel a little bit harsh, almost like Jesus is rubbing salt in the wounds. But if we get to know Jesus as he reveals himself in the Bible, we know that this was done in a loving way, not an accusing way. He had made Peter breakfast, and not only did he give him a chance to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times, but Jesus also reassured Peter that he had faith in him, that he wanted him to care for his flock. Peter's terrible failure didn't exclude him from being used for God's work and for God's plans. And the attitude that Peter displays in the situation also reveals how his heart is changing. You see, he no longer tries to compare his love for Jesus to the other disciples' love. He only states that he loves Jesus. He doesn't make excuses for why he denied Jesus or shift the blame. He doesn't highlight some other great thing that he had done to prove how much he loves Jesus. He didn't say, yes, I denied you, but think about all the other ways I've served you. That would have been him returning to his old identity, to the ways of Simon Peter. Peter also doesn't beat himself up about how unworthy he is. The passage does say that he is grieved, but he doesn't make excuses. He just wants relationship with Jesus. What Peter is displaying here is an example of godly grief. We read in 2 Corinthians, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I thought I'd touch on this briefly. Worldly grief and godly grief. What's the difference? Worldly grief is generally more about the consequences of the sin and about the damage that that sin has caused to your self-image or about the shame that you feel about that sin before others. But with time, as relationships mend and as consequences fail, we often turn back to that sin. How does godly grief differ? How does godly grief heal us and not harm us? You see, with both worldly grief and godly grief, we hate the sin. But with worldly grief, we hate the sin because it affects our image or our status. Whereas with godly grief, we hate the sin because it betrays our Father. It betrays and damages our relationship with Him. When we start to see that our sin betrays the sacrifice that our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, made on the cross for us, that produces godly grief. And just as Peter was grieved about his betrayal of Jesus, we are also grieved when we disappoint our Father. And as difficult as that grief can be to go through, the result is repentance and often a much deeper relationship with our Father. And through that relationship, we come to the amazing realization that we serve a great and a loving God, which leads to healing, restoration, and changes our hearts permanently. How is it possible to change the basis of your identity? How could somebody with such a terrible betrayal in his past go on to become a leader in the church? It's certainly not the culture that we see in the, in the professional world today. Now any failure often means that you're bound either for mediocrity or, or complete failure with little opportunity for second chances. Sure. The answer to that is the resurrection. The resurrection gives us the opportunity to have our own comeback story. We see that playing out in Peter's comeback, from somebody arrogant and independent to somebody humble and submissive to God's will. We see the change in his heart when Jesus asked him the three times if he loves him, and we see it in his further contributions in the Bible. As Cheryl touched on today's Pentecost, when the Spirit came down. How fitting is it that it was Peter who, after receiving the gift of the Spirit himself, preached the message in Acts where 3,000 Jews accepted Christ as their Savior and received the Spirit. And it was Peter who saw the vision of the animals coming down in a sheet from heaven, and he was able to discern that this meant that the gospel should be preached to the Gentiles, who also received the Holy Spirit. To the Gentiles. That's to us. What great hope we can take from this dramatic transformation in Peter's heart and identity and how incredibly God used him going forward, despite his failures, despite betraying him three times. In 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To be born again. I grew up in quite a conservative church, and I, I think I never really heard anybody speaking about being born again. In fact, I remember in my first year as an intern here having a conversation with another doctor, and he told me that he was born again. And I thought to myself, what a weird way to say that you're a Christian. <laughs> so what is Peter actually on about? And, and how does Jesus' resurrection fit into our comeback story? A comeback story that I'm calling being born again. John Piper has an amazing metaphor about this verse, which I find quite useful and quite easy to relate to because it's medical. 
I think some others in the audience might agree with that. And I've got quite a medical-looking slide there, but just forgive me, it's for more of the visual learners in the crowd. He says, think of God's great mercy as the willingness or eagerness of a great heart surgeon to help his ill patients. And then think of the gospel message. That's the message of the resurrection of Christ and the good news that that brings to us sinners because he defeated sin and death as an amazing instrument that he uses for his surgery. In this metaphor, the actual operation that you undergo is your new birth, being born again into a living hope. And the post-operation rehabilitation is the work of the Spirit. New birth comes about out of the great mercy of our Father to save us terminally ill patients, because that's what we are. We're bound for death before Jesus saves us, via the instrument of the gospel. This new birth is our comeback. It relays the foundation of our identity in our hearts and the work of Christ in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit rehabilitates us. We are born again without the sins of our old lives or our mistakes or even our future sins to separate us from God. Our deadly diagnosis has been cured through His mercy and through the resurrection. The reality this evening is that there are only two options. An identity that's based on God's great love for us, or an identity that's based on something else. And you may be sitting here this evening thinking, but my identity is quite secure. I think if COVID taught us anything, it's that it's opened our eyes to how quickly things can change. Jobs can be lost, relationships can end, injuries can happen. But an identity based on God's love for us can never change because He is unchanging. He is the ultimate foundation that can never be shaken. And the real blessing is that an identity based on God's love for us is an identity based on free grace because it has nothing to do with our works. Despite all of our failures, in fact, and all of our shortcomings, it's a gift that is freely given after being paid for Jesus, paid for by Jesus on the cross. Anna is going to lead us through communion now to And I just pray that as we share in communion together, that we'll remember the price that was paid for our comeback. Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. His great love for us overwhelmed all of our failures. His body and his blood bought us a place in the most amazing comeback story of all. The comeback story of redemption with our Heavenly Father.